Good morning. Welcome back. There's a lot of you I have not seen in ages. Good to see you. I know you've been looking at me online, um, but glad to see you. And there's new friends who's visiting us for the first time. We are going to give those of you who are online a little bit of time to get your communion bread and your cup ready. So I'll give you a minute or two. And for the rest of you, if you have not gotten yours, can you please raise your hand so the deacons or the deaconess can pass it to you? Okay, we'll give those guys at home a little bit. They may be baking it right now, making it ready. A little too late, huh? So for those who are here and those who are at home, before we go into our communion, I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And instead of the reading, the, the normal reading, I always read my favorite part of the Paul's description of the Lord's Supper. I like to read a little bit of the few verses just before it, before we go into communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 says, But in the following instruction I do not command you, a little rebuke from Paul, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Mm. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. He doesn't believe it totally, but he knows it's true. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Strong words from Paul. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I command you in this? No, I will not. In Paul, then he goes on and he, he describes what the Lord's Supper is about. And very often, I think growing up in the church, we believe that the Lord's Supper is for like an individual, personal relationship thing with God. First of all, I do not believe that in partaking of the communion bread, there is any salvation gained from this action. I do not believe in that. But I do believe that it reminds me of the Lord who gives me salvation. But in partaking of this, it reminds us that we are participating in what the Bible calls the body of God. The body of God is not just His physical flesh, but He reminds us that the church is His body, and when we partake of the communion, we are saying that we are investing ourselves in the church. That there shouldn't be somebody in the church who has a need that goes unmet even when I partake of this communion bread to forget about it. That I cannot partake of the wine, the cleansing blood of Christ, who unites us as one body and we forget that there are indeed parts of the body who are suffering in pain and neglecting them. So this morning as we partake of the communion, of the bread and the wine, I remind you that as we partake of it, to remind yourself is not just a selfish individual act, that it is a participation in the community of God to remind ourselves of how we are to support one another as a church, that no one should go hungry among us, be it literally or spiritually or emotionally or socially. So let us take a moment. I would like to pray before we partake of the bread and the wine. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you for your sacrifice thousands of years ago for all of us. 
And Lord, in reminding us of this practice, you remind us that, Lord, one day we will go home to heaven together, not as individuals, but as a community of believers, as a family in Christ. And as, until that day comes, Father, as we partake of the bread and the wine, remind us of our responsibility to one another as brothers and sisters in your family, to love one another, not just in words, but in deeds. So, Father, Lord, as we look forward to the resurrection and we celebrate the fact that you are alive this weekend, Lord, may we live as though the God that we serve is alive and among us, not a dead and hidden away in a tomb. We love you, Father. May you help us to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as that, we practice an open communion. Anybody who believes in Christ, believes in Jesus, can partake of the communion, please. And after the bread, the wine. After you partake of the bread and wine, put your mask back on, turn to the guy next to you and say, He is risen. Amen, amen. <laughs> we're going through a quarter where we're going to go to the pillars of our faith. Of what does it mean to be a Christian? Why do we believe in God and what forms that foundation for us to believe in God? So across my house, they're building a new BTO, right? And so over the past few months, you could hear the powering of the, the foundation every single day. Every single day. And in Singapore, I say it's not too bad, but they do spend a lot of time building those foundations because they're trying to build really tall buildings. And a lot of times, I think we, we neglect that as Christians, we have foundations that we have to build and solidify and, and remind ourselves what does it mean to believe in God before we can go high and, and aim to be spiritually mature, to serve people, house people, lead people to Christ. And so the first of this whole series for this quarter is called The Father's Heart. Let's go back to the scripture reading again for today. Just read it through slowly. I don't think you mind reading through the Bible this morning, I hope. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. If you have another translation, open it and read it and just read through the various translations of trying to bring the Word of God to life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Mine is the ESV version. And if you have another version, just read along, look at it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5 says, Blessed be the God... Uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in the last days, some of you have it, or at the end of time for some of the others. What would you do if you are God? Imagine, imagine if you are God before anything in the world was created. There was nothing except you in existence, eternity. What would you do if you are God? Remember when I was young, I would imagine what it's like to exist in eternity and my brain will hurt just trying to imagine this very simple concept that we take for granted. For example, time. Time starts when earth started. First day of earth, second day of earth. And today we are in 2021 AD, 3rd of April. But what does time look like before everything started? Eternity. And what will happen when earth ends? Eternity. The brain hurts, right? It's just like, ugh. You know, people talk about how the universe exists and then the galaxy and earth is here, but God exists beyond all of that. What exists outside of universe? This morning, just brain hurting, just thinking about concepts like that. But that's where God exists. Imagine you are God. What would you do? What would you do? Well, some of the, the many, actually many historical ancient civilization come to the same conclusion that God would create because there's nothing. That they would create an existence of some sort. In fact, the Babylonians believe that in Marduk, the God that they worship, he creates because he was so lonely and he was so busy. Because as a God, he has to do the laundry, he has to cook, he has to clean the house. No, like he needed people to serve him. That's why he created human beings as his servant. So that he can kick back, shake his leg and go, serve me, human beings. That's what Marduk did and according to the history, he created human beings as his slaves to serve him. Is that your picture of God the Father? Is He a taskmaster that is like, serve me, do my beatings? And if He doesn't, whoosh, whips you into shape. Is He just a, such a self-serving God that all He's focused on is about what He wants and how He's going to get it? That He demands the creature that He created to do His bidding serve his inconvenience and worship him so that he could feel good about himself as God the Father. Some of us do think that. Some of us feel that God is requiring our worship because he needs our worship. As though if there's no worshipers, there will be no God. Who's God in that situation then? But the scripture of all the titles it gives to God, it chooses a very powerful 
yet very unorthodox title that describes our God in a very non-tyrannical way, but as a relational being called the Father. If there's any title in the Scripture that is more important or more significant for God, is God is the Father. God is the Father. See, I, I didn't understand what it really means. I'm still learning what it means. You know, when I'm young, what is my father? My father is the person who is strong. He's strong, and if I'm scared, I'm afraid, I'll run to him. He's the person who knows it all. My father knows how to swim. He teaches us how to swim. He brings us out to look at birds. He, bring, he builds swings and tree houses. Yes, it's not in Singapore. I hated the fact that we had to move around a lot when I was younger, but now looking back, I realized that if I did not, I would not have those experiences too. He's the dad who can drive. And for me as a young kid, driving was so cool. Like the guy who can drive. It was my dream to drive. And then when I know how to drive, I'm like, it's not so fun after all. Especially when you have to drive six hours on one day, in one day, eight hours, ten hours. He's the guy who knows where the good durians are in Malaysia because he'll drive us up to Malaysia. We, have, we run church in different parts of Malaysia on his way back when everything was pitch black. Those of you who remember, there was no north-south highway. It was just like windy 2,000 turn, really, really dark roads through the jungle. And he'll turn, all of a sudden, he'll slow down and he'll make a left and into the jungle, the forest. And then he'll go on this really bumpy road and all of a sudden, oh, there'll be a durian shop. And we don't buy one or two durians. We buy huge cement. They used to, you know those cement bags? And then they just chuck the durian in. And the whole car would smell like durian for two weeks, you know? Dad was the one who knew it all. Dad was the one who's strong. Dad was the one who can, who can preach, who's on the stage. There was dad. There was the father. But as I became a father myself, I realized it was a lot more. First of all, being a father or even being a parent doesn't make sense. Why would you create pain for yourself? Like after Lucas was born, my kid, like he didn't sleep the first night. Remember the first night we got home, my, my mom-in-law hasn't arrived yet. So he's just like this newbie with that rookie. And then, and then she's like, you know, just giving birth. So she, she cannot do anything really. She needs to rest. And I'm like hoeing this Lucas, this, this creature called my son. And he refused to sleep. And the moment I put him down, he'll cry. So I stood there in the room carrying him, which was like, I'm already sleep deprived for like four hours in this posture. And I'm like, can you stop crying? Can you stop crying? Let's not cry. Huh? And then he's like, he doesn't know. He's, maybe he's like just chatting with me. That's the only language he knows was crying. Uh, I, I didn't know what to do. And then this, this, this being called my son, Lucas, come into place and he demands to be fed. Feed me every one hour. Feed me. The mom has to do that. You know, I just put and bring to the food source. And then you, you, you have all these trying to teach him as he grow older now, he, he like talk back. He say like, no. I'm like, Whoa, what? Disrespect the father? <laughs> and to teach him and to guide him and he doesn't understand where things are happening. You tell me it's supposed to, you didn't sleep, you didn't take a nap for the whole day, you're really tired. You're supposed to sleep. No. Sleep is for the weaklings. One o'clock, still awake. 
Why do people give birth to children? Why would God create humans? Because He is the Father. His innate character and quality of being God is not to have people serve Him, but to give life. His innate driving force that maintains or even His very existence, the Bible says He is love. And love demands an outward movement of giving. That I think as human beings today, we want to have children because we can't help ourselves because we are made in the image of God. And my son is looking for someone. As a father, his fundamental existence, being, nature, asks, requires, demands that he give. And in order to give, he had to create continuously as a father. The expansion of who he is, love can only be done by creating more love. The giving father continuously strives to give more and more and more. And that's why today, where it's common and traditional to talk about Jesus, during Easter weekend, I'd like to talk about not the God the Son today, but God the Father. Because in giving up of His own life, I'm not saying that anyone is giving less, but the Father plays a part. It's often misunderstood that Jesus died on the cross to appease the Father's anger. That the Father is this horrible, violent man standing there in judgment that somebody has to die in order for me to stop being angry. You can tell me I can be as angry as I am as a person, but I will never, ever require my son to be the sacrifice. So if you misunderstand God to demand somebody die on this day for his sake of emotional well-being, you've misunderstood the Father because it is the most difficult thing for the Father. And I always tell people, that I'd rather get hurt than for my son to get hurt. It hurts me more when my son gets hurt than when I get hurt. So the worst thing you can do to me is not to beat me up, but to beat my son up. And I think, I believe that's an extension of who God the Father is. That he was, he was as involved as God is one in that sacrifice on the cross. It, hurt Him more than we can ever imagine as human beings that Jesus has to die. Because God is loving. God is not fundamentally cold, separated from human emotions. He's a God who is loving in essence. That's why in His being, He demanded justice. It is out of this foundation of love that God requires justice. Because love without justice is a lie. If I say I love Lucas, 
and somebody beats my son up and I say, oh, that's fine. It's okay. No problem. Do I love my son? That's messed up. And because I love my son, I would demand justice. Not payback, by the way, but justice. That this person who hurt my son will not be able to hurt my son again, nor will he be able to hurt himself again, nor be able to hurt other people's son ever again. That's justice. And you know, for God, it was so difficult. Because when God demanded justice, it was not to somebody that he's not related to. Because when he demands justice, it's between one child and another. One son against one daughter, one daughter against one son, one son against a son, a daughter against a daughter. All humans are his children, and when he demanded justice, it was more difficult for him than ever we can ever imagine. And so what did he do? He gave the firstborn, the most precious in a way, he says, because of the, f- the sin and the hurts that my, my other children are causing each other, I will let one and f- once and for all, the only one who can change this, die. Let the big brother take it for the rest of the family. Sounds familiar? Older siblings, extension of God's love. Tell me to Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1 to 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's how God used to communicate to those who needed to know Him. But in these last days, and I believe we are living in the last days. In these last days, He has spoken to us by what? His Son. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. In the last days, the one who will truly communicate God's foundational, fundamentals, desire and and being towards you cannot be communicated through anything, anybody, any other ways except through His Son. Verse 3, because the Son, Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. There's nothing less about Jesus from God the Father. Exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sin, that is, dying for you and I on the cross, on Good Fridays, many, many thousand years ago, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the Jesus that He gave up. God didn't give us something that is not related, external to Himself. God gave something, someone who is exactly Himself. Who is the exact imprint of His nature that when He gave Jesus, He gave Himself. To all of us on the cross. 
There was no two separate beings trying to appease each other. There's no God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They are the same God. One in one family where the son chose to take on the responsibility of dying on the cross, but the father gave nothing less than himself. That the son died for you and I. But the hope that we have is not that the son died. In fact, the hope that we have as Christians is definitely not that he died, although we continually emphasize the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But if our God, if Jesus remained dead, you and I shouldn't be here today. Because he's dead. Take me to John 17. John 17, verse 24 to 26. Let's hear from Jesus in his own expression, in his own prayer for his people. John 17, verse 24 to 26. John 17, 24 to 26 says, Father, Jesus prays, I desire that day, you and I, also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There exists a time where there was no you and I, but just God. And in that God, it was existing. There was a trinity of existence where they were giving to each other in this relationship of love and that's why the God we serve cannot be a self-serving, individualistic God. From the beginning of existence, which we can't even imagine with our brain, God it was in existence in a relationship of giving because they are love. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And this know that you have sent me. So church, I have to remind you today that Jesus didn't come just by Himself. He was sent by God the Father because He was compelled by His essence of who He is, love. Verse 26, And I made known to them your name. The mission of Jesus was not to point to anything else. Amazing. There's not even point to Himself. But to point us to the Father. And I will continue to make it known that the love with, with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. To truly embrace Jesus in your life is to fully accept and submit to the fact that God the Father loves you. That He loves you so much that He wants Jesus to be a part of your life so that you can be a part of His life and in that, participate in Him. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. He's saying, I'm leading you to God the Father. It is only through this way, not just, it doesn't just end here, but it leads us to this loving relationship with the Father. And I'm pointing you to Him. I'm going to use a little quote from C.S. Lewis. 
It says, one must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda. It's found in scarlet letters. But an appalling truth, he does, really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. British humor, huh? Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitative like his own. Not because he has absorbed them into himself, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. That's what human beings do. We rear cattle to eat them, right? But he wants servants who can finally, finally become sons. How many of us have chosen to remain as servants? Like the prodigal son, because we've left the father, we, when we come back to him, we are saying we have to serve you as a servant to earn my way back to sonship. God says that's ridiculous. You are my son. And that's what it is. We want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled, he is full. And flows over. That is the God who we serve. He doesn't need anything from us to fill him up, but he overflows from the very essence of who he is as the Father. And finally, for today, let's turn to Romans 8, verse 16 to 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 to 17. If you have not by now recognized your privileged identity in God given to you because of the Son's sacrifice, let me share with you again this morning. Romans 8, 16 to 17 says, The Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, Himself bears witness with our spirit. The understanding of who we are is not something cognitively gained, but spiritually accepted. That we are children of God. You cannot be a child if you do not have a father. Even though some of you may not have known your father due to humanness, but God in His design have designed all of us to have a father and a mother. And then God the Father gave us all access to having both parents in our lives. And if children... Church, hear this. If children, it's not just children of obligation, children as slaves, children as servants. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Church, that's who we are as as, as as children of God, privileged, given this promise of hope and inheritance to be heirs along with Christ, to be called sons and daughters of God, because our God, our Father, cannot, will not, does not change. He invites all of us into this relationship with Him, into His glory, but also into His suffering. Suffering, why? Because as we await for the day to come, where the pain and brokenness of this world is removed, there will be things that will oppose our identity, 
oppose our understanding, oppose our stand, our belief, our commitment to love others as ourselves. So as we start this new series, as we go through who God is, we seek to remind ourselves every single day that we are children of God.